Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small, a podcast about brand development, entrepreneurship, and innovation in the modern world. In this episode, I'm joined by CEO of Lipper Components, Jason Lippert. What's neat about Lipper Components is it's handed through three generations, starting with his grandfather, Larry, then to his father, Doug, and then Jason took over in 2003. LCI is the nation's leading supplier of components to the recreational vehicle industry, surpassing 11,000 team members and $2.5 billion in revenue. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Today, I'm joined by Jason Lippert of Lippert Components. Jason, thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So I want to start out with the origin story starting in 1956 of Lipper Components. If you could share some insight on your grandfather, on the inspiration behind founding Lipper Components, along with working with components in general. Sure, sure. So, you know, I, I can't tell you all the things that were in his mind. Uh, but yeah. He came back from, the, uh, from World War II. He served in the Navy. Uh, didn't grow up with much. Grew up with... Uh, several other siblings and a small, real small home in Elma, Michigan, which is right in the center of the state, uh, just north of Lansing. And he came home from the war and had to find a job like everybody else. And um, he found a manufactured housing company called Redmond Homes, who turned out Mm -hmm. to be one of the bigger housing manufacturers in the manufactured housing world um, and got a job on the roof line, got promoted to uh, supervisor of the roof line at one point in time. And uh, as he started to network around that business, he got to know one of the Redmond brothers. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, because he worked around roofing, he's, you know, he, he felt he could, you know, you know, get out. And he's a pretty bold guy. He's still alive today and still owns a business today and, and, <laughs> and assists behind the scenes and gives a lot of direction. But um, he, uh, he decided w- with this, uh, Redmond family member that he could start his own business. And he actually, uh, you know, got him to loan him some money and, and uh, they started out building a manufactured home. So he, you know, he, he thought he wow. could just build a home and, you know, get into that, get into that business. But, you know, after their first one, as you can imagine, thousands of components and he just had a little garage they were working out of trying to, trying to build it. And yeah. he ultimately, the long and short is he, he, he ultimately said, you know what, I, I, you know, worked in an apartment and ran an apartment that put on roofs. I understand the roofing product really well. They were at the time they were just metal corrugated roofs that they'd roll onto the unit. And, and, um, um, so he, he said, Hey, look, I've seen the process. I could do that. So they bought some equipment and started building roofs and, you know, in, in 1956. Wow. That's amazing. So moving on from there into your life, what was your childhood like? So were you raised in the Midwest? Yeah. So, you know, my grandpa founded the business in Elma, Michigan, um, you know, had two sons and, um, you know, they stayed in Elma, Michigan. Mm-hmm. So they were, they were a little small rural town, um, maybe 10,000 total people. But, um, you know, the business eventually all moved away from there. So all that was left there when I grew up was, uh, you know, the corporate office. Mm-hmm. My dad had taken over in 1979, and at that point in time, it was a five million dollar business. Um, wow! And then uh, when when my dad took over, between and I, I was born in '72, so between '79 and '94, when I graduated from college, the business grew to about you know uh, just just under a hundred million. 
Okay. Uh, during this time when you were a child, did you ever do anything around the business as a kid, such as helping out? No, you know what? It was just a corporate office. And um, I really didn't okay. even, I really, until I uh, was in college and did some internships at some of the facilities, some of the factories uh, that were outside of Michigan, I had never been to a facility. I didn't know really what he did. Uh, you know, as a kid, you, you tend to be a little bit more self-centered and not, you know, uh, you know, you're not, you're not thinking about what your, your parents are doing all the time. So we just, For sure. we ultimately uh, kind of learned uh, while we were in college, what, what the, what the business was and what it did. So yeah, I didn't really do, my dad had a gym there at the corporate office. So we'd go over there and shoot <laughs> hoops and play basketball all the time. But Nice. So outside of Lippert, as a child, did you have an entrepreneurship mindset at all? Did you ever sell anything or try to start your own companies, maybe say through your teen years? You know, I didn't. I uh, did some lemonade stands and sold golf balls <laughs> on the golf course and things like that. So that was about as entrepreneurial as I as I got, um, <laughs> if that answers yeah, the question. For sure. So out of high school, what made you decide to go to college, even with the family business practically waiting for you? Was it expected of? from your family? Yeah. So I was, I would have been, I was the first, uh, uh, first Lippard in, in our family lineage that had, that had gone to college and graduated. So it was a big deal. And my parents, you know, it was no, there was no other option. It was something that they wanted all of yeah. me and my brothers and sister to do. So, um, uh, initially decided to go to Miami university in Ohio to swim and, and, uh, you know, it was just far enough away, but not too far away in uh, Oxford, Ohio. So uh, I did my I did my four years of undergrad there. Awesome. So what did you study there? I studied uh, accounting and um, uh, information systems, man- information management systems. Okay. Did you ever ex- think about other career paths, say, outside of Lippert, even with this opportunity in front of you? say during college or after college, did you ever think about any other career paths or no? You know, I really going into college, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't even know really what my family's company did. So I wasn't even thinking about our company as an option. Um, yeah. Knowing that eventually I'd, you know, I'd, I'd sniff around it and see what was there, but it wasn't until, you know, my sophomore year where I did my first real inter- internship traveling, you know, with some of my dad's VPs around the country to see some of the facilities, meet some of the people, see what our, see what our business actually did. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was at that point in time that I started to, you know, get some interest. Uh, Okay. Then it was, you know, my junior year summer uh, going to the factory and working a second shift in welding uh, and really getting a a deep appreciation and understanding of the products we build and the people that are around the business. And it was at that point in time where I, you know, I didn't even really consider anything else. I was, you know, I was going to get through my senior year and graduate and go, start wherever my dad wanted me to start out at. That's awesome. So you graduated in 1994 and you went straight to Lippert. So what were some of your first roles out of college then? Were you up kind of in hierarchy getting your degree or where were you at in this era? Nope. I I left out my junior year. Like I said, I was, um, Oh, that's right. No, junior year. I was, uh, I welded and and did just a shift, um, welding operation for building chassis for park model uh, and manufactured homes. And then as mm-hmm. soon as I graduated the following year, I kind of went right back, you know, into that and, and, you know, did about eight to 10 months back in welding. Um, mm-hmm. so I welded for eight to 10 months on the line. 
uh, helped run a line uh, there in manufacturing. And, you know, um, then I eventually uh, got promoted to uh, like an assistant plant manager type position at that facility in Goshen, Indiana. Awesome. So moving on to 2000, I, I read a little bit about LCI became an international company. What was that process process like for Lipper Components? So I wasn't too involved with the uh, the sale to the public company. My you know my dad okay. uh, in '97 just made the decision. He, you know I was starting to get into some other areas and have interest to grow the business in some other areas and. You know, I think he wanted to retire in his 50s and he was just about that age. So he felt it was a good move for the family to, to find a, a suitor for the company that could help with, you know, succession planning and help grow the company. You know, I wanted to do a bunch of things and that was going to require some capital. And, and as a small, you know, relatively small family business, he didn't want to, uh, you know, necessarily jeopardize all the and take all the financial risk by, you know, we were going to need to build facilities and add a lot of equipment and things like that. So he was, he was ready to, um, to sell the business. And we did do that with a, uh, kind of a holding company out of New York that was on the American stock exchange. And, and, um, you know, he retired not too long after that, not too long after mm -hmm. 2000 and the public company let, you know, thankfully let me build a team and grow the business in the direction you know, I felt I should go with getting into some new, you know, some new areas outside of the manufactured housing world. For sure. So in 2003, this is when your father stepped down and you became CEO. Did you feel added pressure having all of this responsibility added to you? Did you feel that you were prepared to step up to this position? You know, I, so, you know, the best thing my dad did for me and, and I, you know, I, I can never thank him enough for it, which is, you know, starting me at the ground floor. So I had a deep appreciation for the products and understanding of the products and how to build them, uh, especially around the welding function and the fabricating function. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, I met a lot of people on the ground floor and, and ultimately, you know, they probably had a different level of respect for me. Having gone through all that, I started up a couple of facilities by the time I became, you know, president and CEO. Uh, so sure. I think I had the support of a lot of the people that were in the business, you know, 800 to a thousand people at the time, um, yeah. would have been a lot harder to do just coming in out of college and saying, Hey, look, I got my, you know, undergrad in business or my MBA or whatever. And, you know, mm -hmm. start out in, you know, the upper rank someplace. I think my story would have turned out a lot differently. The company story would have turned out a lot differently. For sure. So acquiring this type of position, how do you obtain relations with such a high number of employees? So, you know, again, I go back to how my dad started me and, you know, mm -hmm. I appreciated right out of the shoot how important everybody's position was um, and just tried to grow into a servant leader role and, um, you know, get to know as many people as I could in the business. And, and again, starting the RV business out from the ground floor, a lot of those team members are still working for us today. I've brought a lot of those people around the companies have hired people that have hired people that are still around the business. So, um, you know, it was easy to stay connected, you know, with such a, a large number of people just because I'm, you know, I'm comfortable, you know, in the facilities, I'm comfortable around the product, I'm comfortable around the customers. And I've never, you know, I've never left those realms. I've always kind of stayed connected, whether it's to our customers or team members on the front lines today, I still do, you know, frontline leader meetings where we'll pull 50, 60 people off the front lines of our business, the men and women that are actually leading 
teams that build the products on the front lines that for those first level of supervisors and I'll mm -hmm. meet with a team of 40 to 60 of those people weekly and just listen to their experiences and figure out, you know, what we can do better. And I say, I try to stay connected in as many ways as I can, because I think it's, it's a competitive advantage for us when the CEO is that closely connected to the, the people and the products and the business versus, you know, trying to sit at a, a high level and only focus on strategic type, you know, functions. For sure. So something I really respect about your company is that I really notice your community engagement, your employee engagement, your re relationships in general are just like very powerful. Is there something that you can tell your employees when they first come in, maybe a motto or something that your company stands by? So what is that to be expected by, say, like a new employee coming into mm -hmm. the components? Yeah, so it's really different today compared to, you know, when I first started out. So today I'd re say really quickly that, you know, if everybody has to live up to our core values. So our core values are passion to win, uh, caring about others, positive attitude, honesty, integrity, uh, and uh, team play with trust. So, um, so we say, hey, look, you know, if you're going to be a team member with us, it's not good enough just to come to work every day and work hard. You've got to yeah. align with those values. And if you, if you can't align with those values, then, uh, you know, you probably can't be here long term. And if you're a leader, you've got to abide by a whole nother set of values. And that's, you know, you got to be a motivator. Uh, you've got to be an effective communicator. Uh, you've got to be courageous. You've got to be a servant leader. Um, you know, and you got to be humble and coachable. So, yeah, you no. Know, so we've got values for people to line up to. They're not hard to remember. We put them on cards so that if, you know, you, you never have to, you know, that's never too far from, from your mind. But and then we coined our culture journey, you know, that, that will go on forever. I mean, you can always improve your mm -hmm. culture. We, we coined sure. that everyone matters and we did that in 2016. So we have a few sticky things that, you know, we try to say, Hey, look, we're different from other companies because we don't just put the stuff on the walls. We mean it, we live it. You're going to be evaluated by it. And as long as you do these things and try to, you know, you go, go on kind of a, a personal development journey while you're here and we'll help you do that. Uh, you can stay as long as you want. So bouncing off from that, exactly what you said, differentiating from other companies, something I've noticed is your community service. So you guys launched an 100,000 hour community service objective. Yeah. What inspired you to start this initiative? So kind of went hand in hand with our values. And, you know, one of our mm -hmm. core values, as I said, was caring about others. And our mission statement is making lives better uh, by developing meaningful relationships with you know our customers, our team members and our community. So you know, that's where the, you know, so what are we doing about the community? If we really are trying to, you know, develop relationships and make lives better, what are we doing? So yeah. as we've continued this core values journey and this everyone matters journey around our culture, uh, that means people in our community and, you know, our, we were, it's really simple. We were sitting in a strategic planning meeting coming up with our top five short-term objectives. And we always, mm -hmm. we always all nominate a bunch of things that we think ought to make the, that short list. And in 2016, one of our one of our executive leaders said, "You know what? We always have financial related metrics and goals on here. Why don't we do something that's related to service for the community? We all serve, we all do it, but you know." So we yeah. eventually developed. Okay, well, let's. How do we put a metric around service, and how do we encourage more team members around the company to serve? And that's just morphed into a a whole nother, um, you know, a whole nother. Uh, opportunity in and of itself. And we hired a philanthropy, a philanthropy department with a director of philanthropy 
and she has two, uh, two people in her department. So, you know, we're not just saying, Hey, look, let's just try to do a good job and, you know, uh, serve the community. Let's, uh, let's have people that are responsible for, you know, con- contacting the community partners that we have all over the community and setting up serving events and rallying our team members, uh, that maybe haven't served and educating them about how we can serve and all the different opportunities that exist and set up community service days for the company. And that's how we're going to get a hundred thousand hours is tracking and, you know, having actual activity uh, yeah. around that. That's awesome. So going to a little bit about the specs with Lippert, what goes into the decision process with expansions, such as making a new product? Uh, it's give me, I, I was just thinking about just a, a quick add on to the, the last uh, comment you made about, um, yeah. you know, our community service, a hundred thousand hours. So, you know, the mm-hmm. biggest, the biggest aha in, in uh, for us in this community service engagement and hundred thousand hours of community service that we participate in every single year is that, you know, a lot of other companies around the community and around the country that, that have heard about it. Uh, whether they see it on social media or whether they're close to a plant that we've got in Texas or Florida and they've heard about it that way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one of the cool things has been they've reached out and said, Hey, how did you, how did you guys do this? And how did, how did you get this off the ground? And how did you, you know, how did you get it done? So we have yeah. a roadmap laid out and we, we hand that roadmap or game plan out to uh, companies that ask about it all the time, which hopefully has a ripple effect and gets more companies doing the same kind of thing. That's awesome. So what does that look like for an employee? Do you guys give a certain number of hours for employees to hopefully object towards that? Or what is, yeah, how do you obtain actually reaching the goals? Yeah. So we don't force people into serving, but we do know that there's, you know, thousands of people in our organization that in our organization that have never served before. And what yeah. we found just, you know, through the last four years of doing this is that it's not that they don't want to, it's that they don't know how to engage. So mm-hmm. what our philanthropy department does is, you know, they, they, they have great relationships with every charity and most of the communities we, we, uh, we work in and have businesses in and they set up serving events. So, you know, they go back and get these serving events to the plants and say, Hey, look, you know, why don't you do a, a community day? We ask them to do four a year each. So each of our 90 facilities has to do four serving events a year. And it's a plant's job to find a champion in the plant that's going to rally and get as many people, um, you know, to those four serving events a year as possible. Um, Mm -hmm. And usually, you know, they'll, they'll, uh, they'll collaborate and, you know, work on each other and encourage each other to go and they'll always have, you know, a bunch of people show up and then we'll, we'll track the hours from those four serving events at each of the 90 facilities. And, you know, that's how we, that's how we drum up our hours. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. So moving on to the specs of Lippert. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, what goes into the decision process with expansion such as a new product? So, you know, things happen pretty organically around here. We have, mm-hmm. you know, several different markets. So whether it's RV or marine or cargo trailers or, um, you know, our aftermarket or European products, you know, each, each industry have business leaders. Each market has business leaders, whether they're the ops and the salespeople. Um, and generally together, they're, they're making those decisions on their own. I mean, I might come up with an idea once in a while or another executive comes up with an idea and we'll throw it on the table and, and do it. But most of the time it happens organically through, you know, the sales teams bringing back, you know, ideas from the customers or our R&D teams having ideas of their own or operations people having uh, ideas of their own. And what you might, 
be surprised to find is that most of our innovation around the company isn't always just a brand new product uh, that solves a new problem. It's it's uh, making existing products, you know, different and better. Making existing yeah. products, you know, you might have one product and it's it's a really good uh, solution to a problem. But could we do one that's a little bit less cost effective and make a a good instead of a better or a good, better, best type model where we've got maybe three different products in a product line. Uh, but a lot of times it's just adding bells and whistles and features to products to differentiate, you know, products in the category. And that's one of the ways we can innovate and, and develop new products and always, you know, be throwing new solutions out to our customers. Gotcha. So specifically during this time with COVID going on, I was very curious on how is this industry looking? Are you guys booming right now or is it going down? You don't have to share, but I, I've been asking some of my guests this, just kind of like a, a rough outline. How has it looked for you guys? Yeah, the 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 rough outline is we I think, you know, we just we just saw June uh, retail and it was the best retail month ever in the history of RV. So wow. you know, awesome. you know it, I think the the latest uh, survey was 46 million Americans are going to jump in an RV in the next 12 months. And that's, mm -hmm. you know, more than double what we've ever seen in the past. And that's largely because people are looking for a safe way to social distance and travel and take a vacation. AAA said that 97% of the vacations this year will be road trip related. And obviously RVs wow. uh, is yeah. included there. Um, boats are, boats are super popular too. You can take your family out and go on the lake and not be any near anybody if you don't want to. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a good way, you know, RVs and boats are a good way to spend family time and vacation and, and sure. you know, especially in this type of environment where everybody's trying to keep their distance. Yeah. So if you could share one piece of advice with the, an aspiring entrepreneur, what would that be? Something you've learned, regret, just anything? Um, you know, I'd say that, um, you know, you, you have to you have to figure out what it is that you want in life. You have to figure out what your dream mm -hmm. is. And then, you know, from there not trying to make it sound overly simple, but you just have to start mm -hmm. taking steps, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, I think that the, you know, people in general, you know, young people that might think about things that, you know, that it's just, you've got to write the dream down and you've got to decide that you're going to take steps to, to get toward that, you know, to get toward that dream. And, you know, the reason I think people don't always take steps is because there's failure involved and it never feels good to fail. And, uh, sure. And I could tell you a uh, hundred thousand failures I made starting out. But um, I also think that one piece of advice would be to start when you're young. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think that the older you get, especially when you get a family, it's just really hard to get out and, and take the kind of risk you'd be willing to take as a, a 20 something when you're, as opposed to when you're 40 something. Totally. Well, Jason, thank you so much for joining me today. And to the listeners out there, make sure to check out Lipper Components at LCI1.com. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Starting Small. If you would, leave a review on whatever platform you are listening on. Also, follow Starting Small Pod on social platforms to keep up to date on future guests.